Let's start with the obvious. American Psycho is a film many do not consider to be a traditional horror film. However, it has so many aspects of the genre, from murders to horrific treatment of people, to feeding a kitten to an ATM, classic by the way, Here, kitty, kitty. it can easily be categorized as a horror or horror adjacent. That being said, we dig into this episode of what the f*** happened to this horror movie. For those who do not know, American Psycho is a satire told in the first person by Patrick Bateman, a man who either is getting away with murder over and over again, or who has lost all of his marbles, and may be imagining that he is a prolific killer with a few pets for good measure. The history and story of Patrick Bateman doesn't simply reside in the book and the cinematic adaptation of American Psycho. There is a whole entire universe that has been created by author Brett Easton Ellis, where other stories, such as Less Than Zero and The Rules of Attraction, come into play in the far background of Patrick Bateman. Even a series of marketing emails sent out before the film came out, set in the then-current year of 2000, showed new sides of Bateman and new information that could spin the story between serial killer or mental breakdown in a new reality. So let's start with the film, as it is what we are here for. In the film, Bateman narrates his life and lets viewers in on it. We get to see his life at work, with his fiance, with his co-workers outside of work, and peppered throughout all of these are scenes of murder, starting with a homeless man and his dog, to random scenes of violence that escalate in recurrence, as well as times where he simply tells people to their faces that he wants to kill them. I will kill you. There is a lot in here, and it's oddly one of those films where the story or content is somewhat not as important as the tone and what it has to say. The tale being told here is almost secondary to the satire. The film and book, of course, are a harsh critic of life in the 1980s for those with money and the excessive greed. Bateman is one of those often referred to as yuppies, a man with plenty of money, a cushy job, good looking, but bland enough not to get noticed. He follows societal rules when in front of others and tells himself many things that may or may not be true. Have to return some videotapes. Here, he is clearly a nut job, one with serious issues. But are those issues real? He is clearly self-obsessed and self-absorbed. Don't you want to know what I do? Sees himself as a fountain of knowledge and good taste. Come on, you're prettier than that. While the viewer meets different people in Bateman's life, such as his fiancée Evelyn, his secretary Jean, his co-workers, some people some would call friends, and a few other unlucky passers-by in his life, Bateman is busy talking about everything, but mostly nothing of worth. All his talk is incredibly superficial, yet he gets angry at other superficial people. The way he talks about his morning routine is almost like a current-day influencer would. Then a honey almond body scrum. The way he describes his training routine is much the same. He talks and talks and talks. Monologues about Huey Lewis and the news, about Whitney Houston, about the better places to get reservations, etc. His obsession with being seen in the right places, the right clothes with the right people, his need to be better than everyone, his seething rage over simple things such as business cards and drinks at a bar, there is so much that is both oddly entrancing but also incredibly shallow. His world is one where a rose gold Rolex from the 1940s is much more important 
than the chatter from his fiancée planning their wedding. Now, comparing with the book, the film is considered either a great adaptation or an abomination. Having read the book and seen the film, as well as followed the marketing emails sent as if from Bateman to his therapist, the film feels like the right way to adapt it. The book itself was decreed as misogynistic before it could even hit the shelves. Boycotts of the book were called for across the country, and most from folks who had never even read a page of the book. They had heard of the content, and that was enough for them. Forget reading the actual work and seeing if it is indeed in need to be boycotted. There was outrage, and this hurt the book at first, costing its first publisher, but may have served to help sales later on and to help the film adaptation get made years later. So let's get into the book a little bit and into an interesting phenomenon within the literary universe created by Brett Easton Ellis. The book itself is very much an interesting read. It is much in the first person, getting the viewer a peephole into Patrick Bateman's life. Where it differs majorly from the film is that there are some much, 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 much worse scenes than what is shown in the film. Those who have read it will automatically think of the habit trail, hamster cheese section, where things go badly for someone. The book has more details about what Bateman may have been doing with the bodies. Sorbet? Some of it clearly inspired by actual serial killers. The book also has the did he or didn't he sub-theme going on throughout. The more you read, the more you understand it is satire, but also the less certain you are that Bateman is a killer. He may just be insane and making all this stuff up, or he may actually have offered a kitten a sacrifice to an ATM. A lot of what is in the book can be interpreted as the richer you are, the more you can get away without punishment or even an eye being batted. There is a lot in there. It's even clearer in the book that Bateman is as rich as they make them. The book doesn't cut corners and it has even more monologues and kills, more mixing people up with other people, more of what is in the film. The book makes the point of the 1980s being a period of mass consumption, one that leads to unadulterated greed and a lot of control over one's likes. There's a lot in there and it is a very recommended read for those who can stomach it and for those wanting more Patrick Bateman. The universe created by Brett Easton Ellis all comes down to Patrick Bateman, even when it doesn't seem like so. The book and film adaptation of Less Than Zero has a few characters who come back later in other books of Ellis. The one that matters here is Clay, an LA rich kid who goes to school in Camden. Now this one is indirect and requires another book and film, The Rules of Attraction, in which Clay is seen at Camden and Sean Bateman is a student. Patrick is referred here a few times throughout the book without any mentions of his murderous hobby. Sean is the main character here. He also appears in the book version of American Psycho, The Informers and Glamorama. He's more central in Rules of Attraction and was portrayed on the silver screen by James Vanderbeek in 2002. What is important here is more about Patrick Bateman's appearances in these books though. In the Rules of Attraction, he is more of a shadow on Sean, one who hates him and the hate is mutual. There is not much left of Patrick in the film version, but there is a call from Sean to Patrick at one point. In Glamorama, Patrick has a very, very limited presence, but the short interaction seems to indicate that he did indeed kill people, or at the very least, he hurt one person. The appearance is small, yet important. More connections come later on in The Informers. This one takes a turn and includes vampires. So there's that. When the film was made and ready to go, the marketing made a genius move and used a mailing list, something still fairly new in 2000, and sent communications that looked like emails from Patrick to his therapist. These can be easily found online these days, the emails escalate in nature and content, showing that Patrick cares about no one but himself. 
that in a true narcissistic move, he called his son he had with Gene after himself. One of the kid's drawings makes an appearance in one of the emails, signed PB Jr. Bateman's father loathes his kid, loathes his ex-wife Jean, and even tries to reconnect with Evelyn, who's had a string of husbands with titles that made her a princess, a countess, etc. There is a ton in these emails, and they created a new view on Bateman, something that was fun to follow, having read the book but not seen the film yet. This marketing was just genius and created a good amount of word of mouth for the movie. Now, onto the actual film American Psycho. This film has a heck of a history of how it got made at all. The history behind the making of this film is something that has bits and pieces on the web, but to get the actual feel for how director Mary Harmon felt, watching the original DVD release and its odd collection of extras is the best way. The film starts off with Heron being hired to bring it onto the screen as the idea was to have a woman directing the film to quiet down the naysayers and the people up in arms over the content of the book most of them had not read. The idea was to shut off the potential misogyny accusations by having a female director and two female writers. To their credit, it kind of worked, but not fully. Now, having Heron on board, she started working on getting a cast. She saw many potential Patricks, quite a few of them famous faces, but the one that got her attention was Christian Bale, who at the time had a decent resume, but was not the box office juggernaut that he is today. He had played the good guy many times, been in period pieces, and been a kid actor. Patrick Bateman would be a major departure for him, and it also eventually became the first part that seemingly sent him down a new path with more random parts, more demanding parts. For this one, Heron wanted him, but the studio had someone else in mind. In the stories told about this, DiCaprio was fresh off Titanic with a huge teenage girl fan base, yet he wanted the part. The studio offered him more than twice the total budget of the film for the part, and he basically had it in the pocket. It was even announced at Cannes as his next big film. Mary Harmon was not comfortable with it. The studio has her on a pay-or-play contract, so she'd get paid even if she didn't direct the film. Nice, very nice. So while her project was important to her and she wanted to see it made correctly, she was not going to do it with DiCaprio. Instead, the studio had Oliver Stone in mind, the man behind Natural Born Killers and other shocking films. The Stone DiCaprio film was ballooning up in budget and eventually DiCaprio and just was no longer available for American Psycho. This led to Mary Heron coming back with her top choice being Christian Bale. Bale did his now trademark transformation for the role. Heron was planning on asking him to hit the gym a little to be closer to Bateman, but he went all out and gave Bateman the physique everyone now remembers from the many almost fully nude scenes in the film. This was his effort and something that became a bit of a transformation habit for him. The man is nothing but committed to his parts and what they require of him. Money-wise, American Psycho was made for about 7 million US and raked in about 30 million US at the box office. It was a very strong success for what was considered a medium-sized indie production at the time. The film was enough of a success that Brett Easton Ellis adaptations were back, helping get the rules of attraction greenlit and bringing a brand new readership to the book. The marketing for the film was done just right a lot of word of mouth about the performances, as well as the cast being an interesting one. Beyond Christian Bale, the film has a fairly interesting cast. Indie film darling Chloe Sylvani as his secretary and one of the rare few that he brings back to his place and doesn't hurt at all. In the film, she represents a sort of innocence, something that may have saved her. Reese Witherspoon, who plays Evelyn, Bateman's fiancée, was coming off of Cruel Intentions and Election, 
Her image was very much not this, yet she was perfect for the part. Then, the casting for the co-workers, friends, enemies of Bateman had to be on point, where once in almost matching suits and haircuts, they could be seen as peers, possibly brothers, maybe even pass for each other at times. These men were played by Justin Thoreau, Jared Leto, and Josh Lucas. They all have similar attitudes. They blend in, all of them giving good performances here, but also all of them serving their purpose of mixing reality with what Bateman sees as real. Adding to these folks is Willem Dafoe as the detective who keeps coming back to Bateman about Paul Allen's disappearance. He is a major part of why the film works. He plays up and down the reality of things and really messes with both Bateman and the viewer. All of these performances, with the writing and directing, having given this film staying power and helped make it a top-tier satire of a decade filled with nonsense and extravagance. The film did great in terms of money for its budget, its reputation, its source material, and its rating. The rating could have killed this one, but enough curious peeps decided to check it out, and now it's a well-known film most film lovers have seen at least, if not picked up on disc. The film even had a sequel, the absolutely craptastic American Psycho 2 All-American Girl, which was unleashed on video in 2002, starring Mila Kunis, doing what she can with the material, which gives us a fantastic kill scene where she ends her creepy professor, played by William Shatner. A character named Bateman does make an appearance, played by Michael Kremko, and well, he isn't exactly memorable.